0: Hey, thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church Podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. If this teaching leaves you with a question about the content or a story of what God is doing in your life, please send a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church because we'd love to hear from you. Well, good morning. Welcome. It's surprising to see so many of you here today. And if you've come to fill up on your bread and milk, I'm sorry, we're out, all completely out. <laughs> I thought that'd be funnier. <laughs> anyway, you know, my name is Chuck and I'll be your host today. But we will, I always start off with a trivia question. How many of you are, would admit that they're over 35? Now, how many with the hands up, how many of you remember a movie called The Breakfast Club? The Breakfast Club, oh, quite a bit. If you don't remember, I'll show you the, the video, or the, video the, the, the poster, the reminder to, of it to spark your memory. Basically, the plot of The Breakfast Club was quite simple. You have five very diverse teenagers who are forced to spend detention together on a Saturday. And these are different teenagers. They all come from different social cliques. I don't know what you'd call them nowadays, but you know, you got the guy who basically is kind of a rebel, kind of the bad boy. You've got the the loner. You've got the jock. You've got the popular girl and the nerd. I don't know what they'd call them today. But basically, you've got a lot of people or five people, five teenagers with very diverse backgrounds. And they're kind of forced to come together on an all-day detention and so what you can imagine is that they come into that detention with, with their own set of lenses, their own way of viewing their world. Consequently, what happens very quickly is they begin to get in some arguments, and arguments that really almost result in fights, fistfights. But what you begin to see is as, we go towards, as, they, as they go towards the end of the movie, what happens is that they begin to realize they have more in common with each other than they don't. They begin to realize that they are, they are all kind of subjects or, or, or um, products of peer pressure and products of parental pressure. And by the end of the movie, really what you see is that they've come to really kind of accept each other, understand each other in a new way. And as I thought about this series and I thought about this movie, I began to think, you know, that's kind of what God does with his church, doesn't he? He kind of takes all these diverse people from all these different backgrounds throws them into one breakfast club so to speak and then he gives a certain amount of time he expects you to spend time with these people and then you know what happens over time you know sometimes you get in arguments sometimes you might even get into to fights hopefully not fist fights but before long if you spend enough time together you begin to realize that you have something in common with each other your common bond in Jesus Christ Anyway, we've been going through this series called Elephants in the Church. We've explained that, most people know that an elephant in the room is basically a a topic or an issue that everybody knows exists, but nobody wants to talk about. And really, that's what we're talking about with elephants in the church. We're talking about issues in the church that most everybody that's been in church long enough know that they exist, but nobody really wants to talk about because they are very uncomfortable. But if we want to be a healthy church... We can't avoid those topics. We need to confront them head on. And we use, in order to do that, we're using the book or uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, to kind of as a guide to walk us through that process. Because if anybody knows how to, to deal with an elephant in the church, it is the Apostle Paul. Anyway, so we're looking at all these different elephants in the church. Last week, we looked at the elephant that I suggested was the biggest elephant, was the elephant of non-discipleship. The idea that you might have a lot of Christians, people that are saved, but they're still pretty much immature. And because of that immaturity, they result in, the immaturity results in all sorts of problems, not only in the church of Corinth, but in churches across the world today. Anyway, this, today we're going to talk about the second element, which I'm calling simply the element of division. We're not talking about math division here. We're talking about separation that is a result of conflict in the church. And again, in Paul's church, there was conflict so much so that in verse 10 of chapter 1 he begins to address it he says i appeal to you brothers in the name of our lord jesus christ that all of you agree with one another one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought so again up front we know that there's conflict in the church conflict over a variety of issues, including even, a, even one that he's kind of personally involved with, one that kind of accuses, a, 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 one where really the people engage in kind of a popularity contest between him, between Paul, and this guy named Apollos. You know, we jump to chapter 3, and we can read about that, where he says, Paul says, are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? So again, that was one of the many issues that, was, that Paul was addressing in the church. And he knew he had to address this. He had to address these issues from the get-go. He had to nip them in the bud before they got out of control. And you think, well, why did he have to? Why was he so concerned with these divisions? Well, really three reasons why. The first being is that the church itself and the church in Corinthians, really the church across Asia at the time, was really kind of in its infancy. It was very unstable at the time, and Paul knew that if there was going to be divisions in the church early on, the stability of church could easily crumble, and the church would never and the church would fall fall away before it even got its foot off the ground. But he also knew that divisions in the church would could affect the witness of the church. That this church again was started, you know, in in homes and that sort of thing, and people were watching to see what's going on in this church. You know, people were at the outside; they were kind of looking in. And if they heard about divisions in the church, they might say, Why would I want to join a church like that that's full of divisions? But really, again, it was important for Paul because, you know, to, to have division, divisions in the church was to kind of dishonor the really kind of like the dying prayer of Jesus Christ. You know, some of you know that, you know, on the night before the crucifixion, Jesus prayed for his disciples. He prayed for, for, for the believers. In fact, he gave a prayer that was really, he talks about the prayer for unity. You know, we read in, in John 17 where Jesus says, I pray also for those who will be, believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The prayer of oneness. That body, that oneness of the body would somehow point to the oneness of the triune God and the reality of Jesus Christ and, and his ability to, to knock down walls of division. But as we know, unfortunately, divisions are as divisions in the church are as common as church potlucks. In fact, I recently read that there was a big fight in the church over the over whether or not they should serve deviled eggs at a church picnic. True story. But some of, the, some of the divisions, some of the issues that cause these major divides are really kind of, of epic proportion, so much so that they, they've caused the church to split up in about 300, over 300 different denominations in the United States alone, 300 Protestant denominations. And what these issues often have to deal with is this, what we would call theological issues, or how you would interpret different passages in the Bible, and some common issues include is, you know, what's the, what's the uh, proper mode and method of baptism? You know, what's the proper way or timing of when you do the Lord's Supper, or how you do it, that sort of thing? You know, how do you handle, uh, how do you deal with uh, a, worship, a worship service? How do you, how do you uh, accommodate the gifts of the Spirit in a worship service? Or really even what translation of the Bible is appropriate? You know, I spent three years down in, in Johnson City, Tennessee. And those people in the South, man, they're King James-only people. I'm serious. So much so that they put it on their, 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 their marquee. We are a King James-only church. And if you don't bring your King James Bible in, you're not a Christian. And that's serious. These people are passionate. So these epic issues, people are very passionate about. And some of these big epic issues, they kind of filter. They find their way into the local church. And so you're always dealing with those type of issues, especially if you're like us, we're a non-denominational church, we have people coming in from all different denominations telling you kind of the way we should do things, so we have to deal with that on a regular basis. Then you have all the other interior, internal issues, you know, internal issues that that kind of center around competition between resources, between volunteers and, and financial resources. You know, that uh, um, issues that revolve around uh, different types of policy, uh, different types of change, because nobody likes change. And then you have a lot of issues that just occur simply because people don't get their way. In fact, we know that James speaks to this when he writes, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You know, I was thinking about this passage and reminding my granddaughter, our granddaughter Daniela, who she heard from her preschool teacher one time when she was throwing a fit and she said, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. (laughs) You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. It not only applies to a five-year-old, it applies to all of us today. A very good thing, you get what you get and don't throw a fit. And so we've got, again, we've got all these reasons that we have this issues in the church or these problems in the church. And then on top of that, you know, what also complicates things is you've got different personalities, different passions, different perspectives, different politics. Politics, that's a fun topic, right, in the church. Some of you were around here in 2016. I know some, a lot of you were around here in 2016. You remember the country was a little bit divided at the time? Well, that division ended up flowing up in the church, Coming into the church, and I began to see a lot of stuff going on, especially in social media, between different groups, both sides of the fence, so to speak. And being a pastor that's really concerned about unity, well, I decided it might be a good idea to to host a unity forum. (laughs) A unity forum. And we had, at that time, we had uh, Nick Cogniglio and Lanny Wilson help us out facilitate that particular forum right over in Cafe Connect. Some of you were there. How many were there at the unity forum? Fun times, right? <laughs> Fun times. It was a train wreck. It was a disaster. <laughs> total, total train wreck disaster. Made me re- And I was thinking about doing it in the community. And I couldn't even do it in my own church. Again, it made me realize why people don't have unity forums, why churches don't host those things. I mean, really, we had everything from, you know, from shouting to accusations to tears. And by the time we left that forum... It felt like we had more disunity than unity when we came in. And more disunity than when we came in. Anyway, again, I say all this to say that conflict is going to happen in a church. But having said that, conflict is not all bad. You know, God created us, you know, as unique human beings. You know, different ethnicities, different personalities, different gifts different passions, even different political persuasions. And he didn't do that just so we would fight and not get along. He did that so we would be a perfect reflection of his body, the diversity of the body. And actually, when we handle conflict well, what often occurs is that individuals and even churches experience spiritual growth. And we see this in the the book of Acts. You know, a couple a while back, we did a we did a, a series on the Book of Acts, and you may recall that in the early part of Acts, that when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews, among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. The Grecian Jews, among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews. Conflict, right? Now, again, the disciples said, you guys deal with this stuff yourself. I don't want to deal with it. But it was a problem that they encountered. They knew they had to do something about it. And so they decided to tweak some things a little bit to make a change. And the change was pretty simple. What they did, they, they, they assigned seven people and called them, eight, uh, called them deacons who would be in charge of caring for the Jewish ladies, the Jewish widows. And because they took the initiative, they had a problem that they, they, they resulted in change, what we see happening is not the church dying, but the church growing. In fact, the passage goes on to say, So the word of God spread. The numbers of disciples in Jerusalem increased very rapidly. Another instance takes place in Acts between, kind of an argument between the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. You know, they were about to head out on another church visitation and missionary tour. And uh, Barnabas wanted to take this guy named John Mark. And Paul didn't think it was such a good idea because John Mark had apparently deserted him at one point in the previous missionary uh, journey. But Barnabas says, well, basically, I'm taking him anyway. And it says they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. But we find out later that instead of one evangelistic tour... They had two, resulting even a rapid, more rapid growth of the early church. So again, conflicts can actually be beneficial. So the answer, the question is not, will there be conflict in the church? Really, the question is, will the conflict be constructive or destructive? Will the conflict be constructive or destructive? Will the conflict result in some sort of new creativity, new sort of energy in the church, or distrust? and disharmony. See, the aim is, of the church is not to avoid conflict at all costs. The aim of the church is to make sure that constructive conflict doesn't cross the line into destructive conflict. There's a guy that wrote a book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, a guy named Patrick Lencioni. And one of the dysfunctions is actually fear of conflict. Not conflict, but fear of conflict. Because if people are afraid of conflict, they will never they'll be hesitant to give their voice. And if they don't give their voice into a decision, and the decision is made, they're less likely to be committed to that outcome. So he sees fear of conflict as a destructive thing. So again, it's not about avoiding conflict. It's about trying to not pass over into destructive conflict. In fact, he does a, a kind of a conflict continuum Linceoni's conflict continuum that begins with on the left with artificial harmony, what he would call artificial harmony, ideal conflict in the middle, ideal conflict point, and on the other side is personal attacks. Let's think first about artificial harmony. Artificial harmony is kind of what we've been talking about all along, is that you've got a big issue in the room and nobody wants to talk about. And so they pretend like everything is okay when it's not. And so, again, there's a lot of problems there. When you leave that elephant in the room, it can be very destructive to a church. People on this side, again, they are the ones that avoid conflict at all costs. They will actually flee. They will run from conflict even to the point of leaving the church rather than having to deal with the conflict. And that's a crying shame. Because I believe, again, if you get two people in a room, you can solve most any conflict. But some people say, nope, I'm conflict-averse, so it's easy for me to just to go to another church. And again, that's very sad. Now, the other extreme, you have what he would call the personal attack side. People on this side, they kind of relish conflict. They enjoy conflict. They see conflict as a competition that they are going to win at all costs. They will do whatever it takes, even if it means ruining the reputation of someone else. But as you might suggest, uh, suspect, is that linciona uh, suggests that you would avoid both extremes. That you would land somewhere in the middle at this ideal conflict point. Again, where you, have a, where you have constructive conflict going on, and you don't allow yourself to cross over into destructive co- uh, conflict. And you may say, well, what does that look like? How would I know? How would we do to make sure that we stay in the middle? There's a lot of different techniques. There's a lot of things we could talk a lot of, about, a lot of different tips, a lot of different principles. But we really don't have time. We're hoping in the future to be able to, to have another uh, have a discussion about that. But for right now, I just want to leave you with three ideas that I think, three principles, that I think if you begin to practice these three principles, you would do a lot to make sure that we, again, we, not that we don't have conflict, but we have constructive co- uh, conflict. The first principle I want to talk about is what we call the the plank-eye principle. Because this principle comes out of Matthew seven three five, that talks about the idea of a plank in an eye. It says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I mean, it makes pretty good sense. You know, what he's saying is that, you know, before you go and attack somebody else for something that they did, some sort of uh, offense, you know, check yourself. Check your own heart, so to speak. You know, begin to, you know, make sure that you don't have that particular, you don't have some sort of a larger plank in your eye. You know, you can do this before you go after somebody else. If you need a graphic to kind of help you remember this, I borrowed one from the Plank Eye Board Shop. Anybody been in a Plank Eye Board Shop? Hey, and Brian's not even here today. I was going <laughs> to... Brian Buck, he owns the uh, Plank Eye Board Shop. And again, I, I asked him if I could use his, his graphic, but I didn't ask him, I just thought I was using it. But I just... <laughs> I just... And Brian's very accommodating. You know, I, I asked him, well, what, what, you, what was your intention for using this particular graphic? And after about 12 texts from him, I finally said, okay, I think i I get it is that you saw yourself as judgmental towards people, but more than that, you saw the people were judgmental towards skateboarders. And so he created the, the plank-eye board shop. Again, don't judge the skateboarders based on their appearance. So it's again, it's a reminder that we just have to examine ourselves to make sure that we don't have any offensive way in us. In fact, a good passage that speaks to this is, is Psalm 139, where it says... You know, David is saying to God, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, check my spirit. See if I did anything that might have contributed to this whole mess. Something that I may be harboring inside. Some sort of attitude, some sort of bitterness that I've allowed to take root in me. And once you do that, you might find that you're the one that needs to be apologizing. And so again, that's the first principle. The second principle is one that if you've got kids, you're probably going to be pretty familiar with. It's called the frozen principle. (laughs) Any of you have heard that song, that annoying song, Let It Go? (laughs) Let it go. I'm not going to sing it. I tried it before. It's like slam the door and go, I don't know the lyrics. Would you go up there and play a little... No, okay, <laughs> But you know what I mean. Again, the idea of letting go... Actually, this is a biblical idea. In fact, if we look in the, in the book of Proverbs, we see the let it go principle. Where the writer writes, A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook, let it go, or let go of an offense. Especially what he's saying. Overlook, let it go. The point being, again... Some of these offenses are so, so small, so trivial, that you just got to let them go. Just let them go. And I'm guilty. I got to let them go too at times. And in fact, if you're taking the soul training class that we've been teaching the last two weeks, we talked about spiritual disciplines. And I would say letting it go is a spiritual di- discipline. You have to train yourself. You have to train your spirit to be able to let... Things go. And let it go by let it go. I mean, just you don't talk about it anymore. You don't gossip about it. You don't talk about it. You don't dwell on it. You don't allow it to grow into you, into some sort of an angry fit until you kind of explode to another person. You let it go. Basically, you do what Jesus does for each of us every single day. You show mercy and forgiveness, the same type of mercy that he shows to us dozens of times during the day. And you just have to do it once. But again, the idea is that you, know, you don't want to add any other burdens to people's lives than necessary. Because most people have a lot of burdens. You know, one thing I've realized, one thing that's very clear to me lately is that most people, especially if you have children, are carrying a major burden around in their life. They are. You know, occupying a third of their brain sometimes. And I was actually reminded, we were talking to Andrew Sassman and I were talking the other day over breakfast that, you know, that uh, I think there's a story about a, a, a man that was in a restaurant one day with three kids and the kids were running around like crazy. You know, we getting real annoying and just upsetting everybody in the restaurant. That finally somebody get up and says, can't you control your kids? And the guy was kind of caught off guard. He said, I, I'm just really sorry. He says, I'm just still adjusting to the fact that I lost my wife in a, in a wreck last week. Again, people are carrying around burdens that we have no idea of. So all it's saying is realize, you know you have burdens other other people's burdens. You don't need to add another burden to the burdensome life. you got to let it go. Now, there's times, though, that it's too hard to let it go because it, especially if it may be potentially damaging to an individual, to yourself, to other people, or to the church as a whole. And if that's the case, then you've got to kind of look at the the last principle, which is the Matthew 18 principle. And the reason it's called the Matthew 18 principle is because it comes out of the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And it's probably one of the most straightforward directives by Jesus on how to deal with conflict. You know, the first one is pretty much simple. If your brother, I would say sister, two sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. The idea here is that you keep that circle of conflict as tight and as personal as you can initially. You don't include a bunch of other people. You don't gossip about it. You keep that initial circle close. You go to the person who offended you. And what you find out is that maybe you had just a misperception all along. Maybe the person didn't even know that he or she did anything to offend you. That there was no ill will intended. And I would suggest that 70% of the problems in the church could probably be solved if people just followed this basic principle. In fact, if you're a leader in this church, you signed a document a while back that said you would follow this principle. And again, it's a, it makes a lot of sense. Go to the person that offended you. Don't go to everybody else. Go to the person that offended you and deal with it. And again, it may be quickly resolved. But in some cases, you have a situation where a person just, they just don't listen. And so in that case, again, he gives the second, the second point here. The second step is to basically go and bring somebody else in. He says, but, but if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. What he's saying is just invite a third or fourth person in there you know, when you're maybe, maybe you just cannot see eye to eye, you know, and you can't just agree to disagree, you feel like you need to get this resolved. So you're bringing a third or fourth trusted person in the world, they'd call that a mediator, to help give both of you kind of a whole new, fresh perspective on everything. And that makes sense, and around here we encourage you to do that. that, that person you bring in, maybe a, a, a friend, maybe another church member, maybe an elder, maybe a deacon, somebody you bring in that can be a little bit objective about the situation. But sometimes people just can't even, uh, can't even get past that. Sometimes people continue to dis- disagree and cannot resolve the conflict in that particular context. That's when you take it to the third step, and this is where it gets a little bit hairy. Because it goes on to say, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now this doesn't mean that you're going to stand up on a Sunday morning and tell it to the whole church, visitors and all. Now there are some churches that do that, and the result is a disaster and usually a church split of some sort. Now when he says the church, he's really talking about the, the church leadership. He's talking about taking it to the larger leadership body to gain some more insight into it to gain some more, uh, uh, do some more research to get more feedback about it, possibly even investigate it a little bit further, bringing a larger number into the group with the aim again of reconciliation, the aim of peace. And if that doesn't solve it, then you take it to the fourth step, which I've never seen, fortunately. And if he refuses to listen even to the church Treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, this is nothing against the CPAs in the crowd. You know, but back then, you know, the people didn't like the tax collectors because they were they were basically exploiting their position, taking advantage of the poor, taking advantage of the people. So they were considered non believers. And the pagans obviously were nonbelievers. And so the idea here, there, if the person is acting like a non believer, which he or she could be, if they are not intent, if they are intent on not reconciling and not making peace, it means they're not acting like a believer, so treat them like an unbeliever. Which in Paul's time he would have said, get out of the church. Unfortunately, today you said that they would just say, oh, fine, I'll just go down to the church down the road. Right? But it, it you know, it does, we've seen it where. I think I have seen it, actually, where, where you might simply have to remove a person from a volunteer, a ministry, you know, or a, a ministry role or a leadership role, or possibly even take away their vote. Anyway, I say all this, again, that's just another principle. You know, just again, just to, to help you understand it. Yes, conflict, you know, happens, and there's a healthy way to handle conflict. And some of these, actually, principles may even seem a little bit harsh, especially this last one. But what it really does is it underscores the severity, or it underscores the the priority that Jesus placed on unity in his body. He places it very seriously. treats it very seriously. But Anyway, in close, when I think about these things, and you think about these steps, again, there's dozens and dozens of things that we could do to try to promote reconciliation, to try to resolve conflict. But the reality is a lot of them just don't work. They don't work for a number of reasons. They don't work because the leaders don't use them consistently or the people refuse to participate in that sort of process. They just don't work. But the reality is the reason they don't work is that you cannot force unity. We saw that in a unity forum. You can't force unity. You can't can't do like when I do when I was a my kids were young. I tried to give. They were fighting. You get them both together and force themselves to kiss and hug. You cannot force them to like each other. You can't do that. It won't happen. But what you can do, and what we should do on a regular basis. Again, you, you, you point people to the common unity that we have in Jesus Christ. At this point, I'm going to quote my son, Austin. He didn't even know he was going to be quoted, but he wrote a nice article about the unity form that we can get you copies of if you want to read it. But he made a very profound statement at the very end. He said, no one can create unity with a unity form. If that's what you're trying to do, we will always leave feeling like failures. The best we can do is point to the unbreakable unity we have in and through Jesus Christ. A unity that depends not on whether we can agree on everything or how well we can avoid the hard conversations, but on what Jesus did on the cross thousands of years before any midterm election. Let us pray. Thanks for listening. If that teaching moved you or left you with questions, let us know by sending a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.